0: Okay, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made you two talents more. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hey, good morning everybody. It's good to see you. Beautiful uh, October day here. And uh, this morning begins Missions Month, as we've uh, been celebrating already. And Missions Month is going to run through uh, November until the first week of Advent, which actually starts the last Sunday of November. And both Missions Month and Advent are going to be a continuation of our sermon series. Advent will be the exciting conclusion of our two-year sermon series, All Things New, the Story of the Bible, and the Healing of the World. And so we're going to be focusing, uh, we're going to stay in the sermon series and the theme of the sermon series all the way through Missions Month and Advent. But our sermon series left off last week with the Apostle Paul in Rome preaching the gospel to all who would listen. And Pastor Eric uh, helped us end there in Matthew, or in Acts 28, rather. And that's where the historical narrative of the Bible ends. It pauses right there, rather. The rest of the New Testament is not more information about the history of God's people, but rather information about God's, how God's people are supposed to live while we are waiting for biblical history to pick back up again. So in other words, our present age, the age in which we find ourselves right now, finally is merging with the story of the Bible. One theologian describes it in this way, which I think can be helpful. He says, imagine that you found a a previously unproduced Shakespearean play, a five-act play. Fantastic, but the only problem is the fourth act of this long-lost play is missing, so if you wanted to put the play into production, how would you do it? Well, you'd have to act out the first three parts faithfully and the fifth part faithfully. But that fourth part, you'd have to improvise in continuity with the first three parts and the fifth part. And so the way that we find ourselves here in from Acts 28 all the way up until the book of Revelation is like this fourth act of this missing play. We're improvising in the spirit of what the instructions of the apostles and the instructions of Christ have been for us in continuity with what came before and what is coming at the end. And so throughout missions month, we're going to be looking primarily in the next three weeks at the letters and the instructions from the apostles about how the church is supposed to be living during this missing fourth act, as it were. So we're going to start this morning of Missions Month looking at one of Jesus' famous parables, the parable of the talent. The parable of the talent is from Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And I've preached on this parable before. Uh, Maybe you recall it was back in 2002. And uh, you don't remember that back in 2002? I did preach on it again in 2010 and 2016, which is still a number of years ago, right? So maybe you don't recall, I don't, I don't fault you, but if you missed those three Sundays or you can't remember it, that's fine. The point I made then was that the parable of the talents is most fully understood in light of Jesus's command to go out into all the world and make disciples. In other words, the Great Commission. And I want to review that point again this morning as we get started with Missions Month. But I want to go one step further than what I've gone in the past. I want to look at why the first two servants in the parable are successful in completing and fulfilling their master's assignment while the third servant is not. And then from there, I want to offer a few thoughts about how we can be successful as well. So we begin this morning by reviewing the connection between the parable of the talents and the great commission, Matthew 25, 14. So if you still have your Bible open, Matthew 25, 14, if you uh, did not open your Bible for the reading of God's word, then do that now. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew rack uh, there in front of you, page 830 in the pew Bible, Matthew 25, 14. While you're getting there, there's just one point. Of context is probably worth mentioning as we approach this parable it's this that as jesus is telling this parable he's telling this parable in order to prepare his followers for the coming judgment so he's been talking about the end of the age and the coming judgment all through matthew 24 and matthew 25 and this parable of the talents is set within that context of being prepared For the coming judgment. In fact, in Matthew 25, 31, through the end of the chapter, immediately following this parable, he talks explicitly about the coming judgment. All right. So, Matthew 25, 14. Jesus tells the story of a master who goes away on a long journey, and before he leaves, he calls his servants to him and he entrusts them with his property. Now, this word entrust is an interesting word choice here. The underlying Greek term that we have here is most often translated in the New Testament as hand over or even betray. So you might remember in Matthew's gospel, we'll talk about how the son of man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. All right, this word betray is the same word that's translated here as in trust. And so the idea of this term is placing something into the power of another. That's what it means to entrust something, to hand over something. So the master is handing over his property into the power of his servants. This is a sobering and thrilling responsibility for the servants. They now have control over the master's money, the master's property. It still belongs to the master, but it has been fully placed under their control. The master's property is referred to here as talents. And a talent in the first century world was a unit of money. It's hard to figure out exactly how a talent corresponds to today's dollars. Scholars who study these things take a guess at it. It was a large sum of money, and scholars guess anywhere between $300,000 to $800,000. Right, so these are, it's a large amount of money, whatever the exact amount is. The servants are being given a sizable share in the master's property. And even the servant that only gets one talent is getting a lot of money. And then off the master goes on his journey. So the picture we have here is of a businessman who has business out of town and who hands his money over to his servants and then asks them to make more money for him while he's away. So the first servant hops right to it. Verse 16, we read that the first servant went at once, or some translations will translate it immediately. He goes immediately, he begins to trade with the money, and eventually makes five talents more. The second servant does the same thing. Takes his two talents, he gets going right away, he doubles his two talents. And then we get to the third servant. Ah, the third servant. The third servant digs a hole in the ground, and he buries his master's money. And this is the first century equivalent of hiding your money in your mattress. It's fundamentally a safe move, but it's guaranteed to net no return on investment because there is no investment. So essentially, the third servant neglects the master's assignment and does nothing with which he's been given. And then in verse 19, after a long time, the master comes back to settle accounts. And the first servant brings the original five talents plus five additional talents that he's earned for a total of 10. And he receives his reward. Verse 23, we see it there. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the second servant, who was given the two talents, he comes with his two talents originally and the two additional more, and he receives the exact same response from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then we get to the third servant. Ah, the third servant. The third servant digs up the master's money, brushes off the dirt, and says, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. And so I went and hid your money in the ground. Here, you can have it back. And this term, hard, that the servant uses of the master, means strong or stern or imposing. The third servant is basically saying, I knew you to be an exacting, imposing, and hard to please master. So I felt it best to play it safe." The master, as we read, is not buying this excuse. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. Basically says, you are trying to mask your sloth under timidity and fear. But if you really had been afraid, then at the very least, you could have invested my money with the bankers, and when I came back, I would have the interest to show from that. But the truth is, you were just lazy, slothful. You had one job to do, and you didn't even try. You completely ignored the assignment that I gave you. And things do not go well for this third servant. His one talent is taken away, and he's cast into the outer darkness, where there'll be, as verse 30 tells us, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this expression, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is an expression that's used frequently by Jesus, whether in parables or elsewhere, When he's speaking about the judgment of hell, as he is here in this passage, also in 2451, which you can just look over here on page 830 in your Bible, you'll see the same expression. I don't want to get off topic here, but I think it's worth saying something about this expression, because I think we often have the wrong idea of what Jesus means when he uses this expression of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We often think, when we read things like this, that people who gnash their teeth are gnashing their teeth because they are in pain. But in the classical world, that's not what the expression meant. The expression gnashing of teeth did not convey the idea of pain, but the idea of rage. So when one gnashed their teeth in the ancient world, they gnashed their teeth at someone. It means an act of rage that precedes violence. So, for example, in Acts 7, 54, you might remember the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was one of the early ministers of the church. He was preaching the gospel, and he enraged the people that he was preaching to. And the angry mob, it says in seven fifty-four, gnashed their teeth at him, and then they rushed him, and they killed him. So the image here in this parable that Jesus is telling it is not the image of a vengeful master, who throws a meek and timid servant out to be tortured, but of a just master casting a lazy and disobedient servant off of his estate, off of his property. And when the lazy servant gets cast out, the servant's true colors are shown. He doesn't express contrition at this just judgment. He vents his rage and hatred towards the master. He gnashes his teeth at the master." So that's the parable. Now let's connect this to the Great Commission. There are a lot of parallels in this parable. Some of them are more obvious than others. I got a chart here, a slide to help you. And we can start with the easiest ones, which are the first one and the last one. And then we can fill in the rest. So the master represents Jesus. So whenever like in Sunday school and the teacher wants you to guess what the answer is. You just say Jesus, because that's almost always right. And that is, in fact, the case here, right? The master represents Jesus. And then at the end, the settling of accounts represents the judgment. That's the whole point of what Jesus has been talking about in Matthew 24, Matthew 25. He's talking about being prepared for the judgment. So the settling of accounts represents the judgment, and then we could kind of fill in the rest of it in the middle. Now it gets to make a bit more sense. If the master represents Jesus and the settling of accounts represents the judgment, the master's journey away is represented by Jesus's journey away or his ascension that happens after his resurrection. The master's servants represent Jesus's servants. We'll skip for a moment the master's assignment. The talents represent the gifts and capacities that Jesus has left for the church while he's gone. And the master's return represents Jesus's second coming. All right, now let's get back to the master's assignment. What does the master's assignment represent? That's the six million talent question. See what I did there? Talents, dollars. I got that from Pastor Greg, I got to be honest. So if you liked it, That's where it came from. If you didn't, that's where it came from. All right. Uh, In the parable, the master is a businessman who gives his servants the assignment of investing his money and expanding his property. All right. So that's, that's the assignment in the parable. What is the assignment that Jesus left with his followers right before he left for a long journey, right before he ascended into heaven? The text that unlocks the meaning of the parable is found in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So just turn a few pages over, page 835 in your pew Bible. These are the last words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Let me just read this for us here in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So Jesus calls his servants together to the mountain Now he's going to give them instruction right before he leaves. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus calls his disciples to them, to him, He entrusts them with his power and authority, and he gives them the assignment of making disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of Jesus, of the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the whole point of this parable, of the talents that we're reading in Matthew 24, is that when Jesus comes back from having been away on his long journey, he's going to expect that we've been busy doing the thing he asked us to do. And so the master's assignment represents Jesus's assignment, which is the great commission. So just like in the parable, we will be measured against our... So just like in the parable, we're going to be measured against our participation in the assignment that Jesus has left us prior to his departure. And that's the end we've got to be living in light of. It's the culmination of that fifth act. We've got to be on point with this assignment. And that's why we have Missions Month every year. The whole point of Missions Month is not that missions only happens during the month of November, but we celebrate Missions Month during the month of November to remind us that this is our mission as a church collectively all year round. So we come back to it. Once, we give it a whole month to kind of tighten up the screws, as it were, that this is what we're supposed to be doing. The church has one primary job to do while we wait for Jesus' return. It's to make disciples. Now, the task of making disciples is broader, though, than we often imagine or think. Sometimes we think about making disciples and the Great Commission too narrowly in terms of evangelism And preaching the gospel. And that's not wrong. Evangelism and preaching the gospel message with words, actual words, is indeed an essential, it's an even foundational aspect of the Great Commission. Without the message of Christ's death and resurrection, there would be no way to enter into his life giving joy. As Paul says in Romans 10, how can they believe if they have not heard the message? So the message is something that has to be preached, but the whole point of preaching the message about Jesus is so that we and the whole world would come to obey and to live out the message of Jesus. Gospel preaching is foundational to, and it makes possible, gospel living, but gospel living is the end and the purpose of gospel preaching. And that's why every good work, every act of mercy, every act of love, every cup of cold water that we give to the least of these in Jesus' name is an expression, an embodiment of the Great Commission and is a means of proclaiming the reality of Jesus' message. Now, Some of us are more naturally suited to proclaim the message of Jesus with our words. Others are more naturally suited to proclaim the message of Jesus with our lives. And that's okay. We're all called to both, but we're not all equally gifted at both of these things. Just like in the parable, we're not all given the same resources and capacities. And that's fine. think we're all just called to do the best that we can with what God has given to us. Serve in the strength that Jesus has given to you. And then pray for the strengths that you lack. And I know that most of you are sincerely doing the best that you know how. Not perfectly, because none of us are perfect. But you're honestly and sincerely dedicated to speaking and living out the life of Jesus. It's why you come to church every Sunday. Because you want to stay dialed in on this mission. I would say, well done, and keep it up. But let me say a word to those of you who have buried the master's money, in the ground. Those of you who bear the name of Jesus but have no regard for Jesus' assignment, I don't think this is many of us. But in a room this size, there's probably a few of you that this might apply to. Some of you might think about Jesus' mission as, at best, a side item in your life. Jesus is part of your religious life, but the rest of your life, your real life, is pointed toward your own pursuits and desires. And if you're honest with yourself, you're just living a sanitized version of the American dream. Your goals, your ambitions, your desires, your priorities, all of these are shaped and influenced and drawn from our culture's desires. And priorities. Your life is oriented around money, family, comfort, a nice home, early retirement. And Jesus's great assignment is not a significant factor in your life. If anyone is here whom that represents, then I would say to you is to come to your senses The way of the world apart from Christ is empty and it ends in judgment. There is no joy or life down that road. Christ, have mercy on you. If you carry the name of Jesus on your sleeve, but you bury his money in the ground. Christ, have mercy on you, lest you come to the bitter end of this age, weeping with regret and gnashing your teeth in rage at the master when he meets out his just judgment. Let the example of the third servant awaken you to your peril. And if you are a true Christian, but you have perhaps lost your way, you've lost your focus a bit, then let me encourage you to let this example of the third servant Push you back to re-engaging with the master's priority, the master's assignment in your life. All right. Enough of that. That's what I preached the last three times that I preached this parable. And all of that is true. But there's a deeper, more essential aspect to this parable that I failed to see the last three times I preached it, that I now can see after having gone through what I've gone through this past summer and re-encountering the love of God in fresh ways. This parable is not simply a summons to participate in the Great Commission. It is that, but it also reveals the motivation and power for a life of faithful service. Why did the first two servants answer the call and dedicate themselves to their master's will while the third servant did not? Or perhaps more to the point, why do some followers of Jesus live out the priority of the great commission while other followers of Jesus do not? And the difference is in how the servants view the master. Note the great reward that the master gives to the two faithful servants on the day of reckoning. He gives them a share in his own joy. He says to them, well done, enter into the joy of your master. And the point is not that the master was joyful because the servants had done well. The point is that the master is always, has always been filled with joy. When Jesus invites us into his joy as the great reward for our service to him, his joy is a pre-existing joy. His joy is not based on our obedience. He himself is joy. When Jesus then... When Jesus... When the first two servants serve their... So the first two servants then, rather, serve their master in the knowledge that their master was a joy-filled, fair, and good master. And that's why they immediately, at once, got to work. But the third servant had an entirely different and wrong view of the master. The third servant saw the master as fundamentally hard and stern and unfair. And then with that view of the master, he neglected the master's call. The deep and tragic irony is that the third servant's wrong view of the master became a self-fulfilling prophecy. He feared the master to be a hard lord, and a hard lord is what he found. If we view Jesus as a hard and stern master, we will always hold him at arm's length. If we view Jesus as a hard and stern master, we cut ourselves off now in the present from his love and his joy and cut off from his love, we will falter in our answering his call because it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength, right? What motivates us to engage in the mission to which Jesus has given us? It's not a sense of duty. It's not our persevering strength of our own will. It's the joy of the master that has been given to us, that motivates us and empowers us to engage in the mission to which he has called us. So listen, what kind of master do we truly serve? What kind of master has called us to his great and glorious commission? What kind of master has asked us to spend our lives in loving others and proclaiming his message of love. A loving master, a joy-filled master, a gracious and fair master. We will never serve Jesus enthusiastically if we think him to be a stern and hard Lord. And if for too long we nurture that wrong view of Jesus... And we think more and more of him as stern and hard. If we forget his eternal joy, we may give up serving him altogether. Because the foundation of the Christian life is the love that God has for us. So I've been pressing on this point ever since I came back from sabbatical. I will press it on it again here in the context of missions month. God loves us deeply, incredibly, impossibly, almost recklessly and irresponsibly, almost unjustly. I remember many years ago, my pastor was preaching about the excellency of Jesus, how great and beautiful he is. And I found myself so captured by the beauty and greatness of Jesus as I was listening to him preach And then he said, God, sacrifice this glorious son in your place to save you from your sins. And I was struck by the incongruity of that. And I was almost indignant that God would cast his pearls before swine in that way. How could it be right and just that God would give up his only perfect son for the sake of mere creatures? especially a sinful and rebellious mere creature such as myself. Where does God get the right to do something like that? Then God impressed his love upon me. It's like he said to me, because I love you as a son, just like I love my son. And love changes everything, doesn't it? When love is at work, justice and right and wrong, what's responsible, what's appropriate, doesn't enter into it at all. Love triumphs over everything. Listen, the Father gave up the Son on our behalf because he loves us with the same love and to the same degree to which he loves the Son. To say it even shorter and more pointedly, he loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Let that sink in. No, no, you say, that can't be true. But it is true. The Father's love for the Son is first in time and in priority because his love for the Son is eternal. And because the Father's love flows to us through the Son But the the love by which the Father loves the Son is the same love with which he loves us. Do you believe that? Do you receive that? It's beyond comprehension. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, the Apostle John says, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. This God of abounding, endless love is the one Jesus is calling us to serve and to give our lives for. And Jesus calls us to his mission, not because he wants to rob us of joy, but because he wants us to enter into the fullness of his joy, his very own infinite, eternal joy. So if you find yourself lacking motivation this morning to give yourself fully to Jesus' mission, you walk in and you're like, oh, it's missions month again. I'm going to feel guilty that I'm not doing more stuff. For, I should probably get going on missions month. Or at least I'll try to witness to someone during November and not have to worry about it again until next November, right? All right if you find yourself lacking motivation, then don't just leave here vowing to try harder. Because trying harder won't get you very far. It might get you through November, but that's as far as it's probably going to get you. Don't just grit your teeth and press forward in your own strength. If you settle for gritting your teeth in self-determination, you may end up just gnashing your teeth before the end. Instead, take some time this week. I mean, truly, this isn't just the perfunctory thing to say at the end of the sermon. Truly, take some time this week and get alone with God and prayerfully examine your view of Jesus. Because if the thought of engaging in His great commission doesn't strike a chord in your heart very easily, you got to go back to the foundational aspect of realizing how joy-filled and loving Christ is. He's the one that is calling us to serve, and He is not a hard and stern and exacting and imposing Lord. He is a gracious and kind and loving Lord who is eternally filled with joy and is inviting us in to that joy. Ask Jesus to reveal God's love to you and keep asking him until he does. Reconnect with our good and gracious Lord and let your service to Jesus be fueled by a deep and profound awareness of just how truly wonderful he is. And as we as a congregation embrace the love of our master, we will be filled with joy and we will go at once, just like the servants in the parable, and order our lives in light of the coming end of the age. The word reckless means without regard to cost. And in that sense, God's love for us, it is reckless. He doesn't regard cost when he pours out his love upon us. So we're going to close with the song that I don't know that we've sung here before, but it's called The Reckless Love of God. And I would just encourage you to receive the extravagance of God's love afresh into your life. And let that be the fuel that drives you forward in all things, the Great Commission, not least. Let me pray. Us. Father, thank you that you gave us Jesus. Thank you that you did not regard cost when you sent him to save us. God, we thank you that you loved us. You've loved us with such love. It's beyond comprehension. Help us to bask in it, to to live in it, to rejoice in it. And out of that, Lord, may we then press forward into fruitful and happy service in your kingdom. Give us grace for that, Lord, as individuals. and Give us grace for that as a congregation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.